All right. Well, good morning, brethren. We will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 8 this morning. I, I wanted to read it together, and then we can pray. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray, brethren. Lord, thank you for this joyful day, Lord. We're, we're baptizing and we're adding members to the church, Lord. And Lord, I pray this message would be providentially used, God, to help us to see your design for the church, to see your value for the church, God, to see the ways in which we're to bring you glory through our relationships between one another. God, I ask you to help me minister this word as, to speak as oracles of God, Lord, to, to live out the message that I'm preaching today. Lord, that you'd be glorified through Christ in, in all things. We, we praise you, Lord. You, all glory and dominion and power belong to you. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be here together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we'll be in First Peter 4, 8 through 11, but before we get there, I wanted to just share a brief one-minute-ish summary of the book of 1 Peter up to this point, as it's going to give us a foundation that's relevant to what we're going to be looking at today. So this letter from 1 Peter, for those who haven't read it in a while or those who are newer Christians, it's not written to a local church like the book of Colossians or the book of Ephesians. It's written to a large group of believers that are scattered about Asia Minor across a very large geographical area. And these believers are experiencing persecution. They're going through fiery trials, some of them. They're paying a heavy cost, some of them, for their faith in Christ. And so Peter writes to encourage them, and he encourages them with three foundational truths and I wanted us to just be reminded of those truths before we go into our text today. The first thing Peter does is remind them what God has done for them in Christ in the past, that they've been redeemed from their worthless way of life by the precious blood of Christ. He goes on and he reminds them that God's same power is still actively at work in them, keeping them by faith, that God's power is presently with them in the midst of trials, in the midst of bad circumstances, that God has not forsaken them. And then he points them to their unfading inheritance that's reserved for them in heaven. So he reminds them of everything God's done for them, what God's doing for them, and what God has in store for them as a means to encourage them to persevere through these trials. And after laying those foundations, he goes on to 
encourage them to continue to live holy lives, to conduct themselves in relationships to other people in an honoring way to the Lord. He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about the government, about harsh bosses or masters, and even how to relate to their persecutors. And that that leads us here into verse 8, which is us looking at how we relate to one another inside the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we'll be looking in verse 8 through verses 10 primarily at Christian love, Christian hospitality, and serving one another with our gifts. But I want to keep one thing in mind. We'll be in 8, 9, and 10, but verse 11 shines a light onto this whole message. So although it is about love and hospitality and giftings, it's not primarily about those things. The end of verse 11 says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we're looking at these topics, of how we relate to one anothering, one another. I'm calling the message one anothering for the glory of God. Not as an ends in itself, but as a means to glorify God. So if we could look at 1 Peter, we're in chapter 4 for those who just came in, and we're looking at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So this first exhortation is to love one another. And that word earnest, I don't feel like it's used commonly today. It means zealously or all out, to go all out in your loving one another with an intense zeal. Now, we've, I looked, we've had several messages in the past year on the topic of love so we're not going to look at it in great detail. We're not diving too deep. But what I did want to do is spend a couple minutes establishing a basic definition of love that's going to help us receive what Peter is writing here. And we'll all turn together someplace in a minute. But let me just read a couple texts. Again, don't turn there. But I'm going to read from John 13. You find Peter sitting at the table in the upper room with the disciples and the Lord Jesus there, and, and he says to them these words, John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. To me, that's the foundational verse for Christian love. When you're talking about Christian love, it has to exist. It can only exist from this one reality that he has loved us. Not in theory, not in doctrine, but in reality that we've received the love of Christ in our hearts by faith that we're truly born again. And apart from that, you don't have Christian love. Whatever you have, it is not Christian love. This love is rooted in Christ and the expected and proper response from the Lord of that is that we love one another as he has loved us. It's a reasonable, expected, and proper response, Christian love, to the love we've received in Christ. And practically, that would look like a sacrificial, servant-hearted love. 
You could pull in some things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things. These are some of these, these basic aspects of Christian love we want to have in mind. But if you do want to turn back a couple pages to 1 Peter, the first chapter, at verse 22, I wanted to look at one specific aspect of love relevant to our message today. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the thing to note here is it's a familial love. It's a family love for one another. And Peter says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. Again, it's the response to actually having been born again. We know we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. And what I wanted to draw out of this is he calls it a sincere brotherly love. Now, all throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to as a family, the household of faith. God is our father. Christ points at his disciples and says, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my mother. He doesn't say that these people are like his brothers and like his sisters and like his mothers and that the church is like a family. He says we are a family in the fullest, most real, most eternal sense. And I wanted to, I wanted to put that out there so we could lay hold of that in our thinking as we go and how we relate to one another. It's a sincere brotherly love that the Lord Jesus expects, and he expects it to be so genuine that all the world would know we're his disciples by it. Now, let's, let's take that back to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we will finish looking at verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's various scriptural ways that are all true that love can cover a multitude of sins. And for the sake of time, we're just going to focus on one of them today, and it's the one that fits most directly into, into Peter's letter and his intent here. And that would be that Peter is referencing Proverbs 12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. The New King James translates that proverb as, Love covers all sins. So the covering of offenses is in contrast to stirring up strife. That's the contrast being drawn. You're either covering offenses with love or you're stirring up strife with hatred. And now, of course, this is not suggesting that we cover up willful, unrepentant, debaucherous sins that call for church discipline. This isn't a covering up of something like a criminal covers up his tracks. Not at all. This is talking about how we deal with common relational offenses in the church. A sister maybe said something to you that came across as a bit thoughtless and it hurts your feelings. It, it upsets you. And what love would demand that we do is that it believes all things, it hopes all things, it thinks, you know what, I don't believe that sister intended that the way that it came across 
And probably in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself for me and bore my vile wickedness on the cross, I I think I have it in my heart to just bury this one, to put it away, and to not bring it back up again. These are the types of relational offenses that we're looking at. And the other option is to stir up strife, to become quickly provoked, to exaggerate in your mind what that person meant, to keep them at arm's length in the future because of it, and probably to go and to gossip to someone else about what they did to you. That is the stirring up of strife within the church that Peter is admonishing us over. Even in bigger situations that require an apology, that do require it to be addressed, you can't just bury it right away. You should do so quickly and you should do so thoroughly and you should receive your apology and you should cover it up and bury it never to bring it back up again. So love fully, quickly, forgives and buries Offenses, and as I was I was studying this out, I, I I have no one in mind, but no one in particular. If you said this around me, it's not you individually. But I, I've heard this expression. I, I think only since I've, I've moved here and come to this church, it's a believer saying they don't click with another believer. I just I don't click with that brother, that sister, and I. We we don't click. And that can be an innocent enough saying. It can. It can. Someone could mean, well, we just don't have the same focus or the same callings or we're not in the same area of our lives. I'm not saying that there can't be something innocent behind that. But brethren, if that is a being used as a whitewashed excuse to cover over an offense, rather than using the proper means of love to cover over that offense. That's sin, and it needs to be repented of. Listen to me. Since you were born again, there have been times in your life where the Lord Jesus Christ probably was not clicking with you. If one of your attitudes, one of your habits, some area where you were off, where you weren't walking properly, and the Scripture says in Hebrews that he's not ashamed to call you brethren. He's not ashamed to call those he's sanctifying as brethren. He ever lives to make intercession for us. And so if you don't click with the brother or sister, you, you need to examine that. You need to examine that in light of this call of Peter. And if you find that there is, there is something impure in your use of that word, Not clicking with someone would be an excuse to go and to reach out and to form a relationship on the foundation of genuine brotherly love rather than an excuse to keep them at arm's length. So let's keep this in mind as we do move to verse 9. Loving one another for the glory of God. A Christ's birth, God-glorifying, offense-covering love. Because if we don't take that with us as we look at hospitality and serving each other and and gifts, it's meaningless religious activity. I was was thinking of this. I'm a math guy. You take any number and you multiply it by zero and what do you get? What's the result? It's zero. You take every piece of knowledge you have, your doctrines of grace, your five solas, everything you've done to serve the Lord, However large or small that is, and if you don't have love, according to Paul, 
you're multiplying it by zero. You end up with nothing, absolutely nothing. And so I wanted to spend a little time there just to draw that out as we look at, at these practical topics of hospitality and gifts. Okay, so verse 9. Hospitality, defined as a fondness of guests and loving strangers, a warm affection expressed to them. And here in First Peter, hospitality is in the context of fiery trials of persecution and most likely a resulting poverty that some of these, some of these brethren were experiencing and there's an extra cost to hospitality in those circumstances. There's can even be a danger involved. There's an extra inconvenience. Brothers weren't texting you, hey brother, I'm going to be in town next week. Can I stay at your place for a couple days? They were showing up at your door with the letter of accommodation from the brethren in Ephesus saying, hey, I'm brother so-and-so. I'm traveling to go minister to these brethren I need a place to stay and some food. It just happened. And it might have happened quite often in the midst of these circumstances, and it might have been quite inconvenient, and it might have been quite costly. And it might have been a brother showing up at your door that the last time you were in Ephesus, he said something to you that rubbed you the wrong way, and you just don't click with that brother. And Peter says, You receive them without grumbling. You receive brethren on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ having received them without grumbling. And our circumstances are pretty different from this first century church. But I wanted to draw out several applications we could take away from it. Again, we're talking about loving strangers, warmly receiving them, caring for the brethren. So the first one is there actually are quite a few of us who are practically strangers to each other in this room. We walk past each other Sunday after Sunday, and there's just never enough time to really meet everyone more than a casual hello. So hospitality is a means to get to know the brethren in the church who you haven't gotten to know yet. Another similarity to what we have is there's a lot of brethren who moved here from out of town, away from family, away from friends, and their spiritual family are the ones who are to receive them and to fellowship with them and to care for their needs. And we want to be mindful of that. Beyond that, we have guests who regularly visit from out of town, other brethren, just as saved, just as washed in the blood as you and I are, who were to receive. We have brethren who are going through their own various trials and need some extra love from their brothers and sisters. So one, one admonishment here is to keep in mind there is this, this emphasis on strangers, on showing hospitality to strangers. So we don't want to be inviting the brethren we're closest with and we're most like-minded with over all the time and assume that that's hospitality. That, that's needful and it's good, but we want to look at hospitality in its, in its fuller extent with its emphasis on, on strangers, on those who we're not closest with or most like-minded with. Now, I'm not speaking again against those closer relationships. As you're extending hospitality, you'd expect those closer relationships to form out of that. 
And personally, my closest relationships with brothers in my life have probably been the greatest means that God has used to keep me and to preserve my soul and, and to cause me to grow. So again, I'm not speaking against that. The point is we just don't want to get comfortable there and stop there and neglect the Lord's heart for the greater work of hospitality. And according to the end of verse 9, we're to pursue that work of hospitality without grumbling. Even outside of times of persecution, hospitality doesn't happen in a perfect bubble. It happens among believers with different strengths, different weaknesses, different backgrounds, different levels of spiritual maturity, secondary doctrinal differences, practical differences, and all of those things are coming to the table together. All of those differences, all of our imperfections, and it's just reality. And that's where earnest love comes in and reminds us that the Lord Jesus receives us. He loves us despite the areas where we're weak, where we're immature, where we're off in some secondary doctrinal or practical area, and so we receive one another. And on top of relational issues, there's, there's a cost to extending hospitality, your time, your energy, and you want to do it for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of the brethren, primarily, first of all, for the sake of the Lord. Because when you extend hospitality, sometimes there's a greater cost Sometimes your freshly cleaned carpet gets stained really badly. That did not happen to us. I made this up. We, we, have, we have laminate flooring mostly in our house. But things like that, they, they happen, okay? And if it causes us to grumble or to withdraw from extending hospitality because we don't want those things to continue to happen, we're not glorifying God the way that we ought to and this goes without saying, but the Lord Jesus actually desires that each one of us is loved and cared for by the others more than he cares about us having clean carpets, whatever that is in your life, some possession, some area of comfort, whatever clean carpets means to you, the Lord Jesus values his people more than you value that thing. And in hospitality, you're probably going to be confronted with something like that if it's in you. It's where it's going to be exposed. And when that happens, it's an opportunity to repent, to look to Christ, to continue to grow in him, to love him more, and to love the brethren more, and to value them more, all through hospitality. Now, again, the big picture, doing this all so that God is glorified in the church. We've seen that when we love one another, God's glorified. When his children warmly, affectionately serve each other, such as in hospitality, he's glorified. And that, that serving is using ordinary things. I couldn't think of a better term, so I'll define that. Ordinary things, food, our time, our energy, and for most of us, our homes. These are ordinary things in that lost people, unrighteous people have them, just as well as the saints have them and the righteous have them. They're common to all people. And what happens is when you serve the brethren for the glory of God out of a genuine brotherly love for them, ordinary things 
become extraordinary, God-glorifying things, and that's not me being sensational. Paul said to the church in Philippi that their, their monetary, their physical gift to him was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You know, we, we sing that song, Is He Worthy? And I, I love songs like that that take your mind to eternity and to the throne of God where all there is is, is worship and sacrifice to God. But in this age, God views these things, a heart of love, seeking his glory and serving the brethren, the same, it's the same language as a sacrifice to him. Some, some translations call it, in a place, a pleasing aroma. And so we don't want to lose that. We don't want to lose that picture as we move on. And we will move on to verse 10 in how we serve one another with our gifts. The NASB translates that as our special gifts. These gifts are extraordinary inherently in that they are only given to God's people and they're given through his Holy Spirit. They're extraordinary gifts. Verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, minister it one to another, I'm sorry, I'm reading New King James. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So as we look at this verse, I want to give you a, a brief outline beforehand. We're going to see that every believer has received a gift from God. That gift is one of many gracious ways, one of his varied graces that he helps his people, other believers. Unlike most gifts we receive, it's not a gift we own. It's a gift we steward. We receive it to give it and to portion it out to others. And we do that by faithfully serving the brethren with our gift. Now, one more note before we dive in. I wanted to talk about this use of God's varied grace. When we're talking about the grace of God, Primary, the first thing I think of is the grace of God is unmerited favor in our salvation. That's, that's the main way I often think about grace. And then second to that, it seems like it's just a vague, general way we talk about it that covers every good, favorable, and kind providence. I, I had a lot of grace from the Lord this week. Without, without there being any full definition on it, it's just a a sort of vague way that we talk about the Lord's kindness and providence towards us. But in our context, grace is referring directly to these gifts. That these gifts are one of God's very graces by which we are to serve each other. Now, when we look at the beginning of that verse, as each has received a gift, the King James translates this verse as each one has received a gift. And I share that because it could be unclear to some that each and every one in the church gets a gift. The original language indicates that. Other places in Scripture clarify that. And so I don't want anyone to exclude themselves from these instructions because they assume they have no gift from God to serve others with because that is not what Peter's intending. He's intending each one 
to have received a gift. And it's worth noting that that gift is received. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that it's distributed to each one individually as he wills. So it's a sovereign gift. It's not by merit. It's not by natural ability. Teaching is not a natural ability to communicate. It is a sovereign gift, just like all other gifts are. And they are distributed as the Lord wills. And we know that God gives good gifts to his children. And therefore, whatever gift he gives us, it's good. It's good and it's a special gift from God, whether it's the most public speaking gift or the most private gift that hardly anyone knows you are using for his glory. It's good, it's from God, it's for his people, and it ultimately glorifies God. So what is the gift? The ESV says that we've received a gift. Again, the NASB says a special gift, but this is very specifically referring to spiritual gifts, and I will show that to you in a moment. First of all, it's pretty much, it is the universally accepted reading of this verse, pretty much. And for many good reasons, and I want to look at one of those reasons together without turning this into a Greek study. It starts here in our verse. That word gift, it's a Greek word which The Greek word is charisma, which is where we get the charismatic church from. That's where we draw that name from. It means a gift of grace or a spiritual gift. And in all of its forms, it's used in the New Testament primarily when it's directly and clearly referring to spiritual gifts. Now, just that gives us, gives us, some weight to this fact that this is talking about spiritual gifts. But what is more meaningful than that is the way it's used here in connection with God's grace, that it is a one of God's varied graces, this gift is. And I think we can see that clearly if you can turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we'll be at verse, we'll start at verse 6. Romans 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now let's, let's stop right here. Paul uses the same Greek word, the plural form of charisma, for gifts. He doesn't call them spiritual gifts. He just calls them gifts as well. And the reason we know they're spiritual gifts in this context is Paul goes on to list all these various spiritual gifts. But what I want to note here is not only the word gift, but also the word grace. Paul says that our gifts differ according to the grace given to us. This is the exact same message that Peter 
is preaching to his readers. And Peter, a Hebrew, his letter's written in Greek, and it's written in Greek because it's being transcribed by Silas, Paul's ministry partner, who is with him in Corinth, where we know spiritual gifts were abundant, who co-authored 1 Thessalonians, where Paul addresses them, not quenching the spirit and despising spiritual gifts. So Silas, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Peter is declaring to him this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this word gift in the same way that it's used in all of Paul's writings that speak about spiritual gifts. And I say that just because it, it might not be clear, this verse in Peter, but again, it is universally accepted. I spent so much time in this. This is not the proper biblical interpretive method. But at the end of it, I found out that John MacArthur, the cessationist, says these are spiritual gifts. And John Piper, the continuous, says these are spiritual gifts. And everyone says these are spiritual gifts. So indeed, the Greek, the language, the accepted reading, I want to drive that home that Peter is referring to spiritual gifts. Okay, but stay here in Romans. I, I like this I like this portion of Romans because it shows us even more related to our text today. It shows us if we go on down a couple verses, I got to turn there, to Romans 12, verse 9. Romans 12 down to verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And for the sake of time, I'm running behind, down to verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this entire package of Christian love of Christian hospitality and of spiritual gifts is all together here as one continuous unit of by the means or a way that the early church knew that they were to glorify God in their conduct between one another through these things. And so I just wanted to put that out there. I'll say also the use of gifts and grace, the same language. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians and something similar in Ephesians chapter 4. So, we can go back to 1 Peter. We saw that Paul uses this word gift in the same close content and in the same overall speaking of all these Christian one-anotherings just as Peter is using here. Now, Peter doesn't give us a list of spiritual gifts like Paul does, and we're not going to look at spiritual gifts today. Again, this is about the bigger picture of God being glorified through his people rightly relating to one another. But I do want to note we've seen these spiritual gifts are sovereignly chosen for us so that we can use them to serve others. 1 Corinthians, Paul describes it this way, they are for the common good and our upbuilding and encouragement. And the last thing I wanted to point out is that these gifts are gifts of the Spirit. There's a reason we refer to them that way. Don't turn there again, but in 1 Corinthians 12, 
Paul calls these gifts manifestations of the Spirit. He says that the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And the point being that these gifts are dependent sovereignly on God from start to finish, from him giving them to us and from him using these gifts or stirring these gifts out of us by his Holy Spirit. It's all God from start to finish. And I, I stress that. I've said there's nothing bad. There's no bad spiritual gift. But there are bad things that people can do with these gifts. We can neglect them. We can become prideful in them. We can abuse them like the church in Corinth was. We can despise certain gifts like they did in Thessalonica. And additionally, the scriptures even say that Satan can counterfeit certain gifts and that he does. But again, none of this changes the fact that the spiritual gifts in and of themselves are all good. Every one of them that profits the church when they're used as they were designed. And they were designed to serve one another. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Now, if you're here and you have no clue what your spiritual gift is, it's a reasonable question to ask, how can I serve someone a gift when I don't know what it is? And the good thing is, as counterintuitive as it seems, if you stick with me, I think you'll see you may be able to serve others with your spiritual gift even without having an idea what it is. So again, these gifts are given for us to serve as stewards. Steward manages and distributes someone else's property. So when we think of gifts, we always think of, I got a gift from grandpa I'm putting on my nightstand. These are gifts you get from God your Father through the Holy Spirit to be passed on to the brethren for their good. So remember, we do not own these gifts. We are servants. That is our position, and we want to serve them humbly and faithfully. And we want to serve them in God's strength, not ours. Verse 11 says that whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, we are completely deficient in ourselves to build up the body of Christ by our own resources even with a God-given spiritual gift, it cannot be ministered in the power of the flesh, in the power of our own strength or personality. We rely on the strength of the Lord, and you can include a lot of things in that, but in abiding in Christ, apart from him we can do nothing, in our prayer life, in our, in our being in his word, in our faithful trusting in his promises, in all areas of our lives so that our faith is in such a place that we can indeed serve by God's strength. And we're to serve one another, and this is the heart of my message that I'm going to conclude with. These words, one another, sum up everything we are looking at today in how God is glorified in the church you'll find at least 50 to 60 different one another commands in the New Testament, depending on how you count them, if you count duplicates, 
which ones you really include, the exact number doesn't matter, 50 or 60 different commands to minister one to another. Three of them are right here in our text, loving one another, showing hospitality to one another, and serving one another with spiritual gifts. And the thing I want to note about this is these one another's are directed at the entire body of Christ. They are not directed to the elders. They are directed to the entire body of Christ to serve one another. And there's two, two great errors I wanted to, two very clear things I wanted to talk about and I wanted to move towards a close with. And those are the error of the, low, the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger takes a lot of abuse around here. We know it's erroneous. This believer who's content with living his life perpetually apart from the body of Christ. You can't one another when you're sitting there by yourself. It's all self if you are not an active member of the body of Christ. And again, I'm going to leave that. That's not my main concern here with us today. But the second one that I have is equally true. One anothering leaves no room for the common Christianity out there that otherwise doctrinally sound Bible-believing Christianity whose sum consists of going to a Sunday meeting, listening to, teaching, singing songs, maybe some small talk, maybe the Lord's Supper, depending where you're going, and then going home and living an individualistic life the rest of the week. You don't get 15 to 20 spiritual gifts and 50 to 60 one another's taking place like that. You get the gift of teaching and you probably get Ephesians 5 addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, teaching is an extremely important gift in the church. But the idea you get out there in a lot of churches is it is the only important gift in the church. And that is unbiblical, even when it is unsaid, and it's just shown by the practice. We should thank God for all the one another's and spiritual gifts we have here at work in our local church. I've mentioned before, it was one of the primary reasons my family moved here. So we thank God for that, brethren. And with all things like that, we're told you're loving one another well, do so more and more. My encouragement is to do these things more and more and with a closer eye and a clearer look that they're to be done ultimately for the glory of God in the church. A couple of weeks ago, Jeff shared on every member of the body being an essential part. And Paul takes that same image in Ephesians 4 and says that the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body so that it builds itself up in love. Every joint, each part, when that's working properly, the body grows so that it is built up in love. So when in verse 11 says, everything in everything that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, all of these things we're looking at today, loving the brethren, hospitality, 
serving each other in spiritual gifts and God's strength all contribute to God being glorified the way he ought to be glorified. So I want to encourage you, if you're here and you don't know your spiritual gift, you don't need to know your spiritual gift to serve. You need a heart of love for Christ and for his people, and you need to look around at the needs God has providentially placed around you. Go and, go and do a word search on the one another in scriptures and go and serve the brethren. And in going and in serving, that is a very common way that people discover what their spiritual gift is while they're already doing it. Don't get caught up on the label. Don't get caught up on the spiritual gift. Get caught up on the glory of Christ and get caught up on his great care that he desires for you to have for his people. And I'm going to give one more point here because it's a very relevant point, especially when you're speaking about spiritual gifts or if I say go serve however you're led to. We want to beware of two dangers one, we see believers led astray by feelings, abusing and counterfeiting spiritual gifts. And that all starts by being led away by subjective leadings from the word of God. So we want to be rooted in the word of God. And all of our leadings must conform to this word of God or they are not from God. Even if an angel from heaven comes and tells you they are, we need to be rooted in the word of God. But on the flip side, in reform circles, because of all the abuses and the charismatic circus out there, we can subtly despise all things subjective. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, this leads to quenching the spirit and we have no more grounds to quench the spirit than we do to go out and create a charismatic circus. When Paul corrected the abuse of spiritual gifts, he always ended his corrections with words like this. Earnestly desire to prophesy. After he just spent an entire chapter correcting a church over their abuse of the gift of prophecy. He tells the church in Thessalonica, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. And the point being is we can get very comfortable and despising all things subjective and there's no visible cost to it. There's no charismatic circus that pops up from despising it. But there's a hidden cost and the cost is that the body of Christ is not being edified and built up and there's a hidden cost that shows itself over time in our lives and that's the word of God. And Paul tells us, don't quench these things. In fact, pursue them. Absolutely according to the word of God, but absolutely pursue them, brethren. And I'm going to, we have baptisms. I'm going to save my last point. Let's pray, and then I want to just share an announcement. Lord, you've designed your body perfectly and made it fearfully, God, and knitted it together to edify itself in love, Lord. Lord, help us. Help us to have an eye for your glory. Help us to love each other more, to see each other and treasure each other the way you treasure your church, God. Help us, Lord, to be equipped, Lord, to minister in your strength, Lord, to discover our gifts, to love one another fervently for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.